Let's just pray one more time. Lord, we are thankful that we have a Savior. Is Jesus Christ our Lord. How we rejoice in the fact that he never failed. He never broke the law of God. He did all of the Father's desires. We thank you, Father, that he laid down his life. He assumed the punishment that we deserved, took our place. Thank you that he was um, placed there by your own choosing. And we thank you that as he was buried, so our sins have been buried, and he rose from the dead. And we thank you that he ever lives to make intercession for us. So, Lord, as you're praying for us today, we thank you that you know our needs. Thank you, Lord, that you've already begun speaking to my heart about this passage of Scripture, and I pray that you would help all of us to gain insight here, that your spirit would apply to our hearts, that we would be impressed once again with you and your grace. May we celebrate the wonders of your grace that rebuilds and restores those who are broken by sin. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to do a little survey here so you can be honest and it's nothing to be embarrassed about. How many of you were know where you were in 1963? Okay, some of you do know that. All right, that's good. Hopefully you were born uh, not after that date because if you knew where you were before that, I don't know where you, anyway, where you're thinking with today, but... So assuming you're an older person and born prior to 1963, I wonder how many of you were here in April of 1963 when this facility was dedicated to God? How many were, how many were here for that? Okay, look at this. All right, several of you. All right, I should have had time to interview some of them to hear their stories. Uh, we'll have to hear your stories here later. But on that particular day, April the 28th, this facility, which had been completed some weeks prior to that, obviously, was dedicated to God. And I'm wondering what that service must have been like. If, if, if for those who were here, I'm sure it must have been a thrill to see the final culmination of so many months and years of planning and diligent work and sacrificial giving all showing forth in a new facility for them to use for many years, which we are still uh, over 50 years later. Now, I just want to think to myself, as I've meditated on that, I wonder how many people on that day who were gathered here on that occasion found it difficult to sing. I wonder how the singing was that day. You think it was sort of hum, ho-hum kind of singing? It lacked enthusiasm? You think those who were celebrating that great provision of God, do you think they did so in a rather perfunctory way, in a sort of a routine kind of way? Well, here we are, we're worshiping again. I think, I dare say, there was a lot of excitement, I would imagine, for those people and for some of you who were there. Uh, I don't think we'd use the word anyone was bored that Sunday, I, I dare say. It was an occasion that called for heartfelt thanks, heartfelt praise to God for what He had done in their midst, His faithfulness, His provision on display for them. But then I've, I've thought about that. I asked the question myself. I said, I wonder how long it took before the sense of excitement began to wear off. When there may have been Sundays, so many weeks later, I wonder how long it was, until someone would say, well, you know, that joy and that gladness have begun to wear off. I dare say, my gut feeling was, it might have been that first meeting they had when they discussed what color the carpet would be. <laughs> or some other 
crazy uh, design or decorating issue that people began to get been out of shape over. Well, this morning we're thinking about a day of dedication in the book of Nehemiah. So let me invite you to turn in your Bible to Nehemiah. We're in chapter 12. And here on this occasion, we're looking at a joyous occasion uh, where the, all of the residents of the city, the people of God, are corporately joining together with one focus, and that was to worship God. And they are doing so having experienced God's grace. They knew God's provision. They knew and had experienced God's faithfulness. And they knew that God had enabled them to complete this broken down wall that had been like that for many, many, many years, many generations. And so as they're gathered on this occasion, it was a memorable time. I'm sure that these people, obviously it's made it into Scripture, but it was something so significant that uh, they realized as they gathered together in the corporate worship, they are there to acknowledge and appreciate with a new freshness and sense of the worth of God. How wonderful God is. Look what, look what He's accomplished among us. And we are given this beautiful glimpse of the people of God, glorifying God, enjoying God on that occasion. And I want us to look at this text of Scripture this morning. Uh, let's look at verses 27 to, to verse 30 as we start off here. Verse 27 of Nehemiah 12. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals and harps and lyres. So the sons of the singers were assembled from the district around Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nep Nepto... I'm sorry, I thought I'd practice this... Uh, the Netophathites, Netophathites, I guess you'd say, from Beth Gilgal and from their fields in Geba and Azmeveth, for the singers had built themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves. They also purified the people, the gates, and the wall. I'd like to take this passage and some of the accompanying verses that follow from it, and I'd like to look at it from the point of view of saying, what are some essential elements of genuine, sincere, God-honoring worship? If we truly are worshiping and we're worshipful people, what are some characteristics of that worship, essential elements? And I want to focus on two of them. There are many found in this text, and we could uh, extrapolate many of them, but I just want to focus on two in this ceremony or dedication service and celebration. First thing I want to look at is the idea of dedication, dedicating the wall. Part of worship involves surrendering all that we are and have to God. Here is Nehemiah, verse 27. He's led these people and he's led their leaders to join together now in a time of worship where they acknowledge God and rededicate, sorry, dedicate this building that's now been rebuilt and they're going to say, Lord, we dedicate it to you. Now, what does the word dedicate mean? What does it mean to dedicate a wall to God? Well, the English word dedicate comes from the Latin, which means to offer or to give. And so in a sense, we could say when they're dedicating the wall to God, they're essentially saying, Lord, we are giving this wall to you for your control and for your use. It really belongs to you. They formally acknowledged that even though they and many of these people now had used their hands 
to carry these heavy stones, to put them in place, and to put all that mortar, perhaps, to hold them in place, and that they had invested all that hard work. Remember, they had uh, people standing there working with one hand and their, their sword or spear in the other. They had lots of challenges and difficulties, and there's a lot of uh, things to overcome. And they had invested all this time and energy, but the wall, they're saying, does not belong to them. The wall was God's. That's what they're acknowledging. And they devoted it to God for His purposes. On this occasion, they're agreeing together that the work of their hands is not primarily for their own benefit, but the work of their hands in building this wall was for the glory of God. And God's people were acknowledging what was already true, that God owns everything. But they're admitting that. They're formally acknowledging, acknowledging that. And so genuine worship involves this idea of recognizing that when we come to God and we've received so much grace from Him, everything we have is from His gracious hands given to us. And therefore, when we come, we, it involves the surrendering of all that we have and all that we are to God. When we surrender, we give our families, our work, our labors of our hands. We give our vocation, our assets, our creative abilities. We give them back to God. And we admit that all that we have and all that we accomplish can be attributed to God and His grace and His love and His power. That is the reason why anything ever good comes out of our lives. It's because of God. And so here on this occasion when the chisels and the trowels have been put down and the wall is complete and the gates are finally restored, the city is now becoming repopulated. They're walking now in procession in this wall, on top of the wall, and they're going to say later on, as he goes on, he talks about uh, he's got this choir. He's got a choir as you go down verses 38 and following. He's got trumpeters. He's got all these people who are singing. And he's got them choreographed. So they're going to go on the top of the wall. And they're going to go around and send them around halfway around. So they're really walking on the top of the wall and circling it with people singing. It's a beautiful thing. And I thought to myself, now why is he doing that? Why would he take these people and spend the time walking on the top with music and celebration and song. And I would suggest to you, possibly, if you look back at chapter 4, verse 3, I don't know if this, he doesn't say this, I'm just thinking this, I'm supposing. You remember one of the op opponents that they ran into was this guy named, verse 3 of chapter 4 of Nehemiah, this guy named Tobiah. He was throwing insults at them, trying to mock them and make fun of them. And so he says, even the, what they're building, these, these people are building this crazy uh, build, a wall again. He said, if a fox should jump on this wall, he said, it would break their stone wall down. So I wonder if Nehemiah is saying, I want to show that God is greater than our opponents. He's greater than those who have opposed his work and who have made fun of what the kingdom is all about. And so he's saying, we're going to show the greatness of our God as we walk on the top of this wall that they said even wouldn't hold a fox. It holds the whole choir of singers going around. That's possibly what is going on. But I wonder if also at this dedication ceremony, if you look at verse 46, you'll notice that there's a mention of a guy named Asaph. In the days of David and Asaph, I'm back now in chapter 12. Asaph is a fellow who, a group of them, the sons of Asaph, were a bunch of people who were devoted primarily to the worship of God in the time of David. He had, he had appointed them, and they were leaders in that area, quite gifted and musicians probably. 
And they wrote Psalm 48, which Matt had read for us earlier. It's interesting to think of this now as they reflect on maybe some of the times of Psalms that they have, are familiar with and they're realizing, you know, we should take time to walk around this wall and think about what Asaph wrote. He wrote in verse 9 of that Psalm 48, We have thought on your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of your temple. As is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion, sons of Asaph wrote, and go around her. Count her towers. Consider her ramparts, which means the very thick walls that have been built. Go through her palaces that you may tell it to the next generation, for such is our God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us until death. I'm wondering if this is the echo going through Nehemiah's mind. And he's trying to say, in the days in which the original temple was dedicated at the time of David, well, not the time of, uh, sorry, Solomon, uh, who followed David, but they had a great celebration thinking about the wonders of Jerusalem at that time. It went through a time of decline. And then he's saying, now that we've seen it rebuilt, we're going to celebrate. We're going to walk around this thing. We're going to look around, see what God has done, and count on his goodness and faithfulness to us. And in so doing, they're giving it back to God. Now, I wonder if that isn't a good thought for you and me, not necessarily to be walking around a wall, but to take time to walk around and look at what God has done. Take time to take a tour of your life, to reflect on and review what has God graciously and freely granted you. Because when you think about it, to walk on that wall, on the top of it, was to celebrate the fact that what? That God is a gracious God who took the broken down mess of that city and he rebuilt it into something that was useful, something that he was going to use now for his glory, something that showed that he is a gracious God who does not give up on his people. Can you look back in your life and see, God has shown me grace. I have failed I have made stupid choices. I have done things that weren't done properly. I turned my back on God. I, I was a person who did not show in any way a proper way of honoring or giving thanks to God. I was very self-focused and I was murmuring, complaining to God. I had such a bad attitude. And yet God has what? He's ministered to me. He brought me from that place. He's rebuilt things in my life. And now he's made me more and more and more useful to him. Having learned through those things, I've seen his grace more clearly. And therefore I can sing and celebrate. I think that Nehemiah is encouraging those people to do that because he says, he's thinking, I think, based on Psalm 47, 48, the next generation needs to hear of the stories of God's grace having worked in our lives. They need to hear that we are not perfect people, but God has shown himself to be a God who has given us a wonderful Savior. And the grace of the gospel is what gives us a hope. And that is what we rejoice over. That's where our joy comes from. It's not from what we've accomplished. It's what God has done to us and for us through the gospel. Nehemiah wanted that next generation to be able to pass that down and tell of the graciousness and the goodness of God. God is rebuilding, my friend, lives like yours and mine. That's what he does. 
He takes the broken down. He takes the things that have been neglected. He takes the things that have been a uh, culmination of many sinful choices over a period of time. And he takes and he, he infuses into his grace in people and through that sees the rebuilding process. It's wonderful. And therefore, it's not surprising. The more we thought, think about it, the more we reflect on God's mercies in the gospel, the more it leads us to make a response to God that says, you know, God, you have been so gracious and so merciful to me. My life was such a mess. It was such a broken bits of pieces all over the place, and you've begun to make it in something useful. I just want to surrender everything I am to you. Now, that ought to sound familiar to you. If you're familiar with the New Testament, one of the great verses of Paul's gospel-saturated epistle of Romans says, having laid out why we need the gospel, what is the gospel, and how is the gospel being applied to the nation of Israel and all these big issues of, of those things that he had begun to do in the Old Covenant and what he's doing now, he then comes to that chapter 12, verse 1 in Romans and says, Therefore, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, in light of what God has done by his mercy, to what? Present your Bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable or your spiritual worship. What he's saying there is, he's saying this. In light of what God has shown you in his mercy, in the gospel, it makes absolute sense for you to say what? Lord, I surrender myself to you day by day. I'm yours. Take me. Use me as I am. Use my mind. Use my body. Use my hands. Use my eyes. Use my lips. Use my feet. What am I accomplishing? I offer them to you. You'll notice the quote in your uh, notes there. I came across an interesting quote uh, from some Christians during the time of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia where millions were slaughtered and killed. By and by, when I look at Christ's hands, beautiful hands, nail-riven hands, by and by, when I look at his hands, I'll wish I had given him more. More, so much more, more of my life than I ever gave before. By and by, when I look at his hands, I'll wish I had given him more. That was the song that was sung by those who were about to be martyred for their faith. You know, as I read about these people dedicating this wall, I think to myself, what am I taking for granted that God has shown me his grace and am I taking too much of my time and my heart too occupied by my performance and what I've accomplished? Are we too presumptuously glorying in our successes? My friend, I can certainly identify with Paul when he wrote, as he said, I'm the least of all the apostles, which means what? He was the guy who was out destroying the church. <laughs> and God turned him right around, took the brokenness of all of the crazy pride in his heart, Turned him around and made him what? A great missionary starting many churches, writing all these epistles in the New Testament. And Paul writes this, I am what I am by the grace of God. 1 Corinthians 15. Isn't that our story? We are what we are by the grace of God. If there's anything good in me, it's because of the grace of God. And so therefore, we are called to give all we have to God. And I urge you today, give your family to God. Give your children to God. Give your spouse or your Husband or your wife, your parents, your, your grandkids, give them to God. Give your work to God. Offer it as a, as a sacrifice to Him and what you offer to Him. Your skills, your service. Even offer to God your failings. Say, Lord, here I give you all my failings. I can't undo them. 
I give them to you. Thank you for taking them to the cross and burying them under the blood of Christ. Indeed, as we look at God's hand, he has helped us along every step of our life. If we're honest, we look back, we take some time to walk around and take a tour of our life. We begin to realize that God has shown us his benevolent assistance and that if he hadn't, none of us would have made it as far as we've come. So when you look at this text, we find that these people are so filled with amazement and wonder and thankfulness of what God has done. Verses 44 to 47, I won't take the time to read all that, but there was a sense in which they were rejoicing over what God has done. And they're now taking steps to make sure that the worship services within the temple would make sure that they were adequately uh, provided for. They would make sure that all of the supplies could be stored in appropriate places there. They're putting people in place to help lead the worship together and to make sure that it was financially supported so all these things could take place as they needed to be but hadn't been for many years because it had been neglected. So out of this idea of dedication of the wall and dedicating themselves to God and consecrating themselves to God, the people then are dedicating themselves and they say what? Having humbly assessed the fact that they realized None of this would have happened apart from God's grace. They are led to then respond by what? Opening their money bags. Opening their resources of their produce and whatever plants and, and uh, food that they have collected. That was their money back then. And they give an offering to God. And sort of that is logical, isn't it, when you think about it? Doesn't it make sense that if you're wholeheartedly are, concur and agree that all of your progress, all of your successes, all of the blessings that you've enjoyed in your life, they have come from God, and therefore it is grace that has rebuilt your broken life, your life full of sin, your life full of failings, your life full of ways in which you've messed up again and again, and God has taken all that mess, and He is now making you into someone useful for His purposes and for His kingdom, and therefore it makes all the sense to open up the purse strings, to say, Lord, here I I genuinely and, and with a sense gladness I give of my resources to you because how can I ever outgive what you've given to me? Certainly that was the life example of the Macedonian believers there in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you ever want to get an example of people who were so overwhelmed and affected by grace that they begged for an opportunity to participate in a collection for people who are having a very hard time getting by in Jerusalem because of a famine. And so they're begging for the opportunity. Listen, we'd like to give some, but we don't have a lot, but we want to make sure to give. It's interesting how Paul words it. The, the, it says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5, here are these people who have very little. They don't waste anything. They don't go out to restaurants. They don't go to Starbucks and buy fancy drinks or whatever. You know, they didn't have any of the niceties that we oftentimes take for granted every day that have become part of our normal life. They are living day to day and moment to moment. And in that sense, they say what? They first gave themselves to the Lord, surrendering themselves to the God in light of His grace and what He's done to them. And then it's what? And then they open their, their resources. They open their wallets. They open their, their purse strings. They open their hearts to Christ and then they surrender everything to His Lordship and they contributed from their limited means to the needs of others who were suffering. How many of you ever go to consignment stores? Okay, that's not, that's a, you don't have to be embarrassed. That's a good thing. It's called true recycling, right? I mean, 
Somebody had something, they didn't want it, they don't like it, doesn't fit, whatever. They hardly wore it, so they put it in a consignment store. You look at it, it's so cheap, you can't believe it. And so the things in a consignment store, in a sense, are there really owned still by the person that gave it to the consignment people, right? In a sense, they're saying, we're waiting to see if it sells, and then we get a cut of the money from that. And when you go in there, everything, in a sense, is waiting to be sold. It really belongs to somebody else. And in a sense, you could say, everything that's in the world is on consignment. It all really belongs to God. Everything. And all of us are managers of what the Lord has entrusted to us. And so I have another quote there in your notes from William Plummer. He says this, When we have given God all that we have and all that we are, we have simply given Him His own. Makes sense, right? I mean, it is logical. It's reasonable. And so again, I would just say, I wonder if all of us are once again reminded that part of worship is to say, Lord, I surrender everything I have. And that means in how we use our resources, how we use our bank account, our credit cards, our portfolio, our investments, to get to the point where grace has so affected our hearts that we just say, Lord, I cheerfully, joyfully give because you've given me all that I have. Well, that's part of what took place in that dedication service, the idea of surrender. And I am thankful to say I know many of you uh, who live that way, who see the joy of Christ, and this is why you give. We certainly don't put a lot of pressure on people in our church to give. We pray and we preach the gospel. And that's where God oftentimes is working in people's hearts. Let's look at the next point here. And this is really focused on, I'm going to focus on two verses here. Uh, verse 27, which we just looked at, the dedication of the wall. They sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with, the key word there is gladness. Gladness. And then if you skip on down to verse 43, they have all these singers and different people appointed. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices. And count how many times you get the word joy or rejoice in here. Rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. So what I extract from that verse is clearly an emphasis on not just merely mundane, go-through-the-motions kind of worship. There's a sense in which there's celebration going on here. There is corporately joining together, rejoicing in all that God is and all that God has done. Rejoicing in all that God is and all that God has done. That's what worship is really to be about. It's never meant to be drab and dull. If our hearts are overflowing with thankfulness and adoration toward God then it's not too surprising that you're going to find delight in reflecting on God and thinking about Him and reflecting on uh, how wonderful He is. Again, look at this word rejoicing. A number of English words can try to summarize what it means, but it means glee or to be exceedingly glad, to be joyous with pleasure, to be merry. All those kind of thoughts are incorporated into this word joy and rejoicing. And so these people are organized, they've prepared the musical songs, and the, the text says that this rejoicing was not something that they worked up themselves. It wasn't because the, the music all of a sudden brought them somewhere they didn't plan to go, and therefore they worked themselves up into this kind of frenzy of emotionalism. 
But notice verse 43 makes it very clear how they got to this point of joy. It says, They offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. God gave it to them. A God-given joy. Hearts that are overflowing with gladness. Because why? Because they've been pondering and celebrating God's faithfulness. They've been rethinking. Look where we've come. Look where God has brought us. Look what God is, how he's dealt with us. You think of the earlier chapter there in chapter 8 and 9 and 10 and all the wonderful reflection on the history of God's people. And yet God has still put up with them and been patient with them and forgiven them. And the rebuilding of this wall is not the only thing they're celebrating. They're, re- they're celebrating the rebuilding of their own lives Their own relationship with God had been so sour and so cold and so distant. And now they're realizing, oh, what a wonderful sense of of amazement that God would show us mercy and kindness again. I would imagine that the celebration was in direct proportion to the degree of the need and undeserved blessing that they had received. The more we realize how undeserved, deserving we are to receive God's grace, the more it blows us away. If you look at verse 43, it ends with a very interesting phrase. It says, the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. Now, I've been listening this morning. I'm I'm listening for joy. How do you hear joy? It didn't say the music. It It said, you heard the joy from afar, beyond the city limits, of Jerusalem. I thought, isn't that an interesting phrase? How do you hear joy? And obviously, I think the answer is he's using a figure of speech in some ways. He's saying it's from joyful singing. You hear music. The singing of music oftentimes is a great way to express true joy in our hearts. And notice how widespread the rejoicing was in verse 43. Not just the professional singers and the choir members, but both men and women Young and old, everybody is joining in. I love that. Not just the people saying, oh, I like the old-fashioned songs, or I like the more contemporary songs. You know, none of that's generational dividing stuff. Everybody's joining together to sing. And notice that the choirs of singers that are leading everybody else to sing, they're all getting caught up in spreading joy through music. And that's what James said. James says this in his book, James 5. He says, is anyone cheerful? What does he say? Go read a book? Go clean up your room? Uh, Does he say, uh, go make a phone call and talk to somebody on the phone? No. Is anybody cheerful? What does he say? Let him sing. Sing a song. That's the way to express it. Let him sing praises. So singing is the proper expression of a joy-filled heart. And so here are these people, of course, uh, we're not called to make somebody else do it for us. You join in and you sing yourself. You say, well, I don't have a great voice. That's okay. It's the singing and it comes out of the heart. You can't help it. You join in. And all of God's people are to sing. I won't take time to read you all the different Psalms, but Psalm 100 verse 2 says, Come before the Lord with joyful singing. Not drab and mundane singing, but joyful singing. Psalm 98, break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord. 
Psalm 66, sing the glory of his name, make his praise glorious. Psalm 33, sing for joy in the Lord. Singing is such an appropriate way to express heartfelt, joy-filled worship. It is God's ordained means to, ex to express these things, I think, in a practical way. You say, well, is music really going to be carried forward? Is that's really the ultimate way we know we're supposed to express joy? I would say so, because if you read what's yet to come in the day when the church is finally gathered before their wonderful king and master in glory, and we enter into inexpressible bliss in the presence of God, what kind of communication are you going to hear? Well, if you look at Revelation 5, Revelation 14, Revelation 15, the answer is singing, singing. Music is the language of heaven. And so therefore, in the meantime, while we're still on this earth, we better get with the program because that's what you're going to be doing in glory. You may as well just sort of jump in and start singing now and get used to singing God because it's pleasing to God and it's evidence that the Spirit of God is working in your heart. You say, well, wait a minute. Where'd you get that one from? How do you know the Holy Spirit's working in your heart? I thought it's when you talk in these strange languages. No, no. The evidence of the fact that you are filled and under the control of the Holy Spirit, look it up, Ephesians chapter 5. Be, keep on being filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's when you're singing. You're also reminding other fellow believers of the truth of who God is and speaking the testimonies of His goodness and grace. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. There's the vertical. When the Spirit of God is working, that's what you're going to start seeing. Vertical and horizontal dimension of our singing. Spirit-empowered, Spirit-led singing, the outward evidence of a life lived under the control of the Holy Spirit. I didn't realize this, but I was reading, uh, as I prepared for this message, I came across a quote from James Boyce. He's talking about the contrast of Christianity and the, and the worship of Christians compared with other world religions. And he made this interesting Observation. He says, most religions do not have singing as a chief feature of their worship. Many religions use repetitive chants, C-H-A-N-T-S. I'm not talking about gambling. Okay, chants. In some religions, it's just the clergy that sing. Aren't you glad that that's not true here? But have you ever been to one? Just, the guy takes up melody, off he goes, you he, he can't even follow him, you don't know what the song is, and I'm like, where are we going here? Anyway, and then generally, he says, the, the religions of the world are rather grim. But Christians, however, they write hymns. They sing these hymns in their services. And other Christian musicians compose great oratorios and very, various arranged music. And modern songwriters write choruses. And these are the things that characterize the people of God worshiping in the power of the Spirit. Years ago, I was doing some work uh, at uh, my home where I grew up, and in the workroom at our house, or actually in the garage of our house growing up, there's an old wheelbarrow. And this wheelbarrow, I often wanted to use it because I thought it was just a cool old thing, and uh, I thought it would help me in making less work, right? You're always trying to think, my dad always said, many hands make light work. Well, what can I find that will help me do less work? I mean, that's what I kept thinking. So I would fill up this wheelbarrow with the dirt I was trying to move, or I think it was bricks we were moving one time, all kinds of things we were trying to move around. 
And it hadn't been used very much. It wasn't used very often at all. And the first time I pulled it out, I'm like, man, this thing's not helping me at all. I'm trying to push this thing. It's not going anywhere. So I dumped everything out of it, turned it over, and I realized as I took the wheel, the thing was rusted like it was hardly able. And so what did I do? Pull out a can of, yes, WD-40. You spray that stuff on there. It's a lubricant of some kind. And guess what? That wheel just so freely moving around. Put the bricks back in. Oh, that's nice. It's actually moving so easily now. It made what was a job that was so difficult to do more enjoyable in doing. And I wonder for some of us, if in the wheels of our own lives have become somewhat rusty in our service to Christ, we find ourselves finding worship to be something we do out of duty. I really ought to be doing this. I sing out of duty sometimes. And just because it's the discipline of what I should do as a Christian. But I would urge you to apply a generous portion of what I would call the spiritual WD-40 is, is really to apply the gospel of grace to our hearts again and again. To have a fresh sense of, look at how God has so graciously dealt with me. His love for me is not like anybody else's love in my life. He doesn't give up on me. He forgives me completely. He doesn't, he doesn't put impossible things in front of me and say, oh, too bad, there's no hope for you. No, he points me to a Savior who did what I couldn't do so that I might be his adopted child. I would encourage us, one of the greatest things about helping us find joy in our service to Christ, which is what Psalm 100 calls us to, serve the Lord with gladness, come before him with joyful singing. You say, well, I don't have any joy in my singing. I've lost it a while ago. I would say to you, my friend, hum a hymn that speaks of God's grace. Start singing about the grace of God. Start singing hymns or songs that are filled with the gospel, reminding us of what God has done in Christ. Until what? Until you begin to sense, sense that your heart is now starting to, to flow with a sense of wonder and amazement of God's love and grace. You know, in my own heart, I find myself at times fighting for joy. It's been a very difficult year in many ways. And I find myself... And I think about this text, I think about times when I'm fighting for joy. What is it about my heart that I don't find myself so joyous? And you know, as I think about this text, if I was walking around that wall, you know what I'd be prone to do? Even on that joyous occasion, I would be looking out and saying, you know, that stone on that wall, that needs to be moved in. That's sticking out too far. Somebody messed up and there's a big gap over here. It's like you start thinking about all the critical things and missing out on all the good things. Are you that way? Do you have a problem with that way? I'm, I'm terrible that way. It's always the glasses can be half full if I'm not careful all the time. And so rather than noticing things that are not right, I have to change my perspective. And changing one's perspective will often then lead us into being able to sing with greater joy. How do I do that? Here's two suggestions and then I'm done. Here are two suggestions for remedies for those of us who might find ourselves in joyless service for Christ. We're doing the things we're not even doing, but there's real no joy in it. I've lost my joy. Number one, one of the key things to do is to remain active among the fellowship of God's people. Because the tendency is when you lose your joy, you're like, I don't even want to be around it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to be around it. 
you, you tend to withdraw yourself from other believers. And I would again remind you, Hebrews 10 warns us and says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Don't stop involving yourself with other believers because their joy often can be helpful for you to see your joy renewed. Because in their singing, it might help your heart to also be singing. That's happened many times in my life. I've come to a service and I'm saying, Lord, I need you to help show up for me today because I, I tell you, I'm not sure uh, I'm ready to be here today. But this is Sunday and here we go. But the singing oftentimes draws me into it because other people are singing and helping me get to that point myself. And so I would just say again, congregational singing, singing with other believers, being a part of the public worship of, with other believers is a wonderful way to help continue to give you opportunity to be exposed to joy and the opportunity for the Spirit of God, number two, to help soften your heart and restore joy to you through the Word of God. The Word of God is key. The Word of God is so important. Romans 15, 13 says, Paul has a prayer for the people he's writing. He says, May God, the God of hope, fill you with what? All joy. He's praying for these people that their hearts will be filled with joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, I'm praying the Spirit of God is going to work that in you. You say, well, how's the Spirit of God build joy in me? I'm convinced. Jesus said, these things I have spoken unto you, John 15, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. It is the word of Christ. It is the word of God that is what will bring us to the point where we can see and understand the greatness and grace of God shown to us in the gospel that gets us back to the point where we say, oh, wow, how gracious God has been to me. How joyous I am in thinking about what is done for me, what I'm going to receive in Christ, what I currently enjoy in Christ. All that is now going to be made clear the more I get into the Word. And it becomes like a WD-40. Just making all those gears that don't move, now they start moving the more I'm around the gospel. May God help us. Let's pray. Father, as we reflect on this passage of Scripture about an event that took place a long time ago, we thank you that there is a wonderful sense of encouragement for our own hearts, Lord, that worship is a selfless pursuit. It's not about us, it's about you. And getting our hearts focused on you, bringing our attention onto what you have done and what you are doing, what you will do, Lord, I pray for those of us here today who lack joy. There might be some of us here today, Lord, who have never really known the joy of salvation. They have never really understood what it means to transfer their trust from themselves. They're always trying to prove themselves or do better or trying to meet up to what they think is good enough for you to accept them. Lord, I pray that today they'll understand the joy of salvation is they can be freed from the burden of their sin and their guilt through a wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ, if they just transfer their trust to Him and repent of their sins. Lord, give them joy, we pray, in the gospel today for any who would come to You in faith. And Lord, for those of us who have known You for some time and who have known Your grace, I pray that You would bring us to the point today, Lord, of a fresh appreciation. I pray that You'd help us to walk around, look and re 
uh, sort of take a tour of our lives, Lord. Look back and see your grace dealing with us again and again and again. And recapturing in our minds, Lord, in our hearts, a sense of wonder and amazement and love. Do this, I pray, by your Holy Spirit as you take your word and apply it to each heart today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.